Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com. You're listening to Dr. Christian Brugger, J. Francis Cardinal Stafford Professor of Theology at St. John Vianney Theological Seminary, giving a talk entitled Bioethics as Interdisciplinary. This talk is part of the Bioethics series at Franciscan University of Steubenville. Since bioethics is a, is a field of inquiry, in some places it's a department in a university, what it inquires into, what is someone doing when one does bioethics? And more than philosophers claim to do bioethics, there are prominent physicians, Leon Cass and Edmund Pellegrino, and lawyers, sociologists, political scientists like Francis Fukuyama, psychologists, historians, a lot of theologians, Jermaine Grisey, Paul Ramsey, Dan Callahan, Stanley Hauerwas, all of them claim to be doing bioethics. So what unites their work? What qualifies one to do bioethics. Bioethicists today act as commercial consultants to corporations. They do policy analysis, offer expert testimony in courts, perform political advocacy. If you followed the transition from the Bush Bioethics Council to the Obama Bioethics Council, not only were the faces changed, but even the, the motives and intentions and, and way of doing bioethics were significantly changed. The group under Obama sees themselves as more politically motivated activists, and under Bush they claim more to be philosophers thinking, doing deep think about complicated questions. They're members of institutional review boards at hospitals, ethics committees, government task forces, and so on. So I ask again, what is bioethics? And that's what I'd like to explore with you tonight. And the first thing I'd like to begin by saying is that bioethics is interdisciplinary, not a, an insight of a rocket scientist. But um, to describe a field as interdisciplinary is to claim that its corpus of knowledge, the field's corpus of knowledge, is secured via the knowledge found in more than one discipline. It depends on more than one discipline. And Moti Nisani, a bioethicist, uses a metaphor. He calls it the fruit metaphor to illustrate the idea. He says, comparing a disciplinary, a multidisciplinary, and an interdisciplinary mode of inquiry, he says, a disciplinary science can be likened to serving up pieces of fruit. Multidisciplinary makes a fruit salad an interdisciplinary subject makes a smoothie. The metaphor is, I think, quite inadequate. Bioethics does more than blend together distinctive components from multiple disciplines. Rather, it organizes and prioritizes domains of knowledge in the service of a single disciplinary end, which is securing ethical knowledge, normative knowledge, securing answers to questions that are formulated with the term ought or should, what should be done. So my proposal, which may not sound controversial to this audience, but it would have been at Loyola Marymount, so bioethics is a branch of applied ethics. There are different camps who argue for different identities for bioethics. But 30 years ago, Thomas Silver argued 
that the mother structure of bioethics is ethical reasoning and that the structure includes as a necessary infrastructure cross-disciplinary premises and discourse. The Encyclopedia of Bioethics to 1995 revised edition says something similar. It says all the contributing disciplines are concerned with an evaluative endeavor. So what's the value of this for persons or what, is, what, what should be done with this? Not just a, a question of what is the case. So I'm going to argue without the organizing role of philosophical ethics, the contribution of allied fields would amount to little more than a dialogue between sciences. Analogous to a living body where specified functions are made intelligible by the end of the health of the organism, but the functions themselves are not only necessary for that end, they are in a sense constitutive of that end. The work of my toe is not for something other than what my toe is, which is my toe, it's me. So it's working towards my good. Similarly, the end of ethics, which is the ordering of actions, commitments, and communities towards personal and communal fulfillment, makes understandable the necessary contributions of allied fields. And for two, two reasons, I, I don't mean to say that the allied disciplines are merely instrumental to the task of bioethical reasoning. First, bioethical questions are not only practical questions, but they're also descriptive questions, speculative questions. For example, we see in the question, is whole brain death a reliable indicator for human death? There's no should in that. That's just a, that's a, a question that's essential to answer for bioethicists to be able to get a handle on how we should deal with the question of organ transplantations. But that's, a, that's a, an is question, a speculative question. The second reason that they're not merely instrumental, the allied disciplines, is that the answers to bioethical questions extend beyond the scope of philosophical ethics as when, for example, the field turns to legislative and regulatory solutions. But if by instrumental we mean pertaining to that which is not for its own sake, then I would say the allied disciplines are instrumental to the task of philosophical ethics. The specific ends of biology and psychology, medicine, law, history, sociology, are not the ends of the discipline we call bioethics. To the extent they're necess a necessary part of bioethics, they're necessary for formulating satisfactory replies to prior questions related to what's good and right, to what humans should do and what kinds of people we ought to be. If the overarching questions pertain to applied ethics, progress towards their resolution depends on mediating questions from allied fields an attempt to itemize all the fields that are allied to bioethics would be laborious, and I'm not even sure I could do it. But since the interdisciplinarity of bioethics is represented by the questions it asks, and questions are generated in relation to practical possibilities, to options, what can we do, an attempt to operationalize or 
put into sort of practice the interdisciplinary mode of rational inquiry through the use of an example might be instructive. Consider the current of thought known as transhumanism that defends and advocates for the use of science and technology to enhance the basic capacities of human nature. Clinical research traditionally has driven to overcome the effects of disease and degenerative conditions, aims that we could call therapeutic in nature. Transhumanism, or the transhumanist ideal, proposes augmenting the ordinary capacities of human nature through enhancement technology. So from healing human nature to transforming it to something superhuman, above the human. I'd like to consider one area of research supported by the transhumanist ideal that poses an interesting case for bioethical analysis. Before I do, I want to make two caveats about transhumanism. The first, the line between therapy and enhancement is not a black and white line. Some, for example, might consider neural interface cards allowing users to access the internet via mm -hmm. thought alone for non-therapeutic purposes to be ethically no different from utilizing Bluetooth technology. Others might see it as the first step towards creating a human supercapacity. So I don't intend to address here questions related to drawing satisfactory lines between therapy and enhancement, as important as that project is. Second, I set aside the question of technology for the augmentations of the powers of the dis disabled. The ethical questions surrounding the use of technology for the disabled are more a matter of safety and fair distribution than questions of basic justifiability. So brain-computer brain interfacing to assist quadriplegics in the operation of computers or embedded micro-mechanical devices to deliver drugs and gene therapies or the whole field of nanotechnology for treating disorders of the heart or brain or nervous system, retinal neuromuscular and cortical prostheses, a brain prosthetic to assist visually or physically or cognitive, cognitively disabled persons, so-called telepathy chips to assist with communication deficits or motor neuron disease. These are all being developed and I consider these, at least in principle, to be triumphs of clinical medicine and their related ethical questions of safety and distribution I leave to another essay. The case I want to consider in this presentation is the use of technology to assist the cognitive functioning of those who are not suffering from maladaptive emotional or cognitive disabilities. In particular, the case of memory alteration. Presently, memory alteration studies go in two directions. On the one hand, they attempt to restore and improve it, which at my age and even more at Pat's age, we might <laughs> value having a little pill that could bring back the memory. On the other hand, they attempt to blunt and erase its effects. And this latter technology is what I'd like to talk with you tonight about. Scientists are beginning to understand better the way memories are stored or encoded in the brain and the mechanisms by which memory and emotions interact. 
There's an almond-shaped cluster of nuclei within the brain's temporal lobes known as the amygdala. And this, scientists believe, is involved in the encoding of what's called emotional memory. Our brains not only remember images and facts from the past, but they also remember or encode emotions associated with those experiences. So we've all heard of the condition post-traumatic stress disorder, which people can suffer as a result of living through traumatic situations. Sexual abuse as a child or the experience of, of military combat. And the memories of these experiences carry with them very, very powerful emotions. And the experience of the memories can be crippling for these persons. Research has found that people who suffer damage to the amygdala, a damaged amygdala, can still remember past events but don't exhibit the enhanced memory ordinarily associated with emotionally stirring experiences. Consequently, clinical studies over the last decade have aimed at suppressing the activation of the amygdala using drugs called beta blockers. We can expect more powerful drugs to be developed that separate the experience of memory from other facts of the experience that's remembered. And we don't have to be alarmist to predict that as their functions are perfected, that the functions of these drugs, the drugs will be sought for use in non-clinical settings to minimize ordinary feelings of remorse or fear or guilt or sadness. Again, I'm not addressing the use of te the technology to treat the pathological expression of emotions, but rather a kind of morning after pill, to use a term coined by Leon Cass, for coping with ordinary feelings corresponding to human experiences. I said above that the interdisciplinarity of bioethics is represented by the questions it asks. And I divide these questions into four categories. There are descriptive questions, predictive questions. So descriptive, what is the case? Predictive questions, what will be the case? Prescriptive regulative questions, that is, what sorts of policies and laws should we have in light of this information? And then prescriptive normative questions, questions, what should we do? Basic ethical questions. And I also stated that the mother structure of bioethical analysis is philosophical ethics. So for the sake of this, this exercise, this example using transhumanism, I formulate the overarching normative question as follows. What is the ethically most appropriate way for our community to deal with memory alteration technologies wanted for non-therapeutic purposes? A very general question. What should we do about this? This is a prescriptive normative question. To answer it, however, certain descriptive is questions and predictive, what will be questions need to be asked. These are the domain of what Pellegrino refers to as the disciplines of the particular. Chief among these disciplines are the hard technical and clinical sciences out of which the technologies themselves arise. Memory alteration techniques involve, among other things, the domains of neurobiology, neuropsychology, behavioral and clinical medicine, and computer science. 
Drawing on the expertise of scholars in these fields, bioethical analysis asks, what are the scientific and technical possibilities presently available? What can we do to assess whether they pose any wrongful risks? We need a sufficient understanding of what they are and what they entail. We don't want to be over lax about it, but we don't want to be over strict about it. We don't want to say, oh, they're, they're messing with memory, therefore we shouldn't touch that. We want to ask what in fact is going on. And an ethicist can't answer that. You've got to get the people who know the technology, the scientists, to answer this question. What are the current types of memory alteration? What are the respective modes of activity? What are the benefits and burdens of each? What are their side effects? to discuss their impacts on populations, the social sciences can assist us, so sociology and psychology, anthropology, economics. These engage in what might be called descriptive ethics. They provide analysis of the consequences of technologies as they're reflected in behaviors and attitudes and policies of different populations, especially within vulnerable populations such as children, the poor, the disabled, and the sick. How do the technologies influence the behaviors of those who utilize them? The sociologists can tell us this. The psychologists can tell us this. What are their impacts upon marriages and divorce rates, parenting outcomes, sexual behaviors, school performance, religious participation, indicators of mental health, the proportion of people with increased depression or anxiety, substance abuse, suicidal ideation who participate in these types of technologies? What motivates researchers to develop them? Who benefits most economically from them? What motivates people to use them? Social sciences can help us answer these questions. Historians may ask other more remote descriptive questions. What's the continuity and interrelationship of viewpoints and social initiatives on cognitive alteration over time? Do we have examples from the past that can help us address questions in the present? Literature and film ask what imaginary and fictive worlds are or can be used to illustrate the benefits and burdens of technologies of this sort. The movie Gattaca was very helpful in discussing various types of enhancements, human enhancements and, and, and uh, assisted procreation techniques. Philosophy and religion also can answer descriptive questions, not just normative questions. What views on human nature are presupposed in the use of and advocacy for these techniques? How do religious values such as belief in God, views about sin, forgiveness, death, judgment, heaven and hell, correlate to people's attitude about memory alteration technology? How do these values influence the questions we ask? and the answers we give in relation to the technologies. But we also have predictive questions to ask, questions about what in the future we can anticipate. One scholar, Marcus Duville, argues that questions aimed at foreseeing the direction that current technologies are likely to take are necessary to ask for bioethical analysis. What future developments do the current possibilities anticipate? When drugs cease to satisfy, it's common for people to desire drugs that promise stronger expressions of a desired effect. What stronger forms of memory alteration 
are foreseeable. For example, memory erasing for people who want a complete break from the past. The Bush President's Council on Bioethics envisions the technology being sought by the military to steal the nerves of soldiers on the battlefield against emotional re resistance to killing or by persons who want to dull the sting they suffer from their own shameful acts or to assist criminals to numb the memory of their victims. How are future variations of the drugs likely to affect our community? Are there reasonable alternatives to assist people with painful memories that don't pose as many undesirable risks? Because these are predictive and not descriptive questions, they deal in probabilities and not in facts. Yet ethical analysis not only concerns itself with what is the case and what ought to be the case, it also takes into consideration the reasonably foreseeable side effects of one's actions and one's community's adoption of certain possibilities over others. For example, if in response to school shootings, a community posts armed guards in its grammar schools without advanced consultation of experts in child psychology on how this is likely to affect the development of youth, then their decision-making is deficient. Regarding memory alteration, bioethics should ask questions such as, if we grow comfortable with augmenting human cognition through machines, such as neural implant, memory chips, will concepts presently applied to computers, such as upgrading, hacking, and technical obsolescence, begin to be applied to people? Since technology is market-driven, questions of fair access to augmentation technology should also be considered. What populations are most likely to benefit and who will be left behind? What will be the effects of the creation of a new normal where every child is above average? How will the attitudes and expectations elicited by augmentation technology affect relationships between parent and child, teacher and pupil, between peers? Would widespread use cause people to grow in disdain for the givenness of ordinary human nature? Will feats of human excellence made possible through biotechnology, winning a spelling bee, defeating a difficult opponent at chess, deserve the same kind of praise as lesser accomplishments achieved without the assistance of biotech? Are personal achievements impersonally achieved truly the achievements of persons? It's a quote from the President's Council on Bioethics. Will the limited dis distribution of bioperfecting techniques, since all costly medical techniques are limited usually to the wealthy, increase social tranquility or foment disharmony? Who's competent to answer these questions? I'd argue with due consideration for the provisionality of the answers, since they're predictive, these questions should be entrusted to the disciplines that specialize in the question subject matter. So questions pertaining to the future direction of science and technology should be entrusted to the scientists and the technology experts. Questions about impact upon bodily health to those in the medical profession, especially researchers. Questions on the impact on social units on psychological development and on culture, 
to sociologists, psychologists, and anthropologists, question upon, about economic impact to economists, and so on. A final type of inquiry in, involved in bioethical analysis is what I call prescriptive regulative questions. Related to the normative questions of what should be done are questions about possibilities for the juridical, the legal regulation of science and technology, important field for bioethicists to be involved in. So, for example, even if we defend in principle the non-therapeutic use of memory alteration technologies, we might argue nonetheless that some limitation, some legal limitations is in order. Or we might oppose the technology but believe that legal regulation subject to the law of unintended consequences would make things worse. The expertise of lawyers and policy specialists can play an important role in generating and answering questions such as what policy options are available in light of accepted moral principles and which should be adopted. They might also be called upon to advocate for public, reg public regulation of technologies that, that affect communities on a broad scale. I've argued that no single discipline possesses all the requisite competencies for bioethical discourse, at least for it to be done well. And I called philosophical ethics the organizing discipline by which I meant to refer, refer more to a competency than to a field. That competency is the ability to engage in and guide ethical reasoning. Ethical preeminence in the bioethical task, therefore, should not be taken as supremacy over the task, but rather as the ethicist's guidance and leadership of the task. The idea that bioethicists are pack-minded, meddlesome busybodies is not uncommon. So it's important, therefore, for philosophical ethics not only to acknowledge the necessary role of other disciplines, but also to facilitate their proper contributions. Two objections are made to this ethicocentric conception. The first comes from those who argue that the interdisciplinarity of bioethics brings into existence a whole new discipline. That interdisciplinarity, as it were, is the door to a subject which is ex nihilo, brought into existence from, from, from nothing or from this antecedent material, but that's not identified with a prior, a prior subject, a, a sort of hybrid of science and philosophy that offers a new way of doing ethics, combining values and principles from both the abstract and the particular disciplines, and hence entailing a unique domain of expertise. This seems to me to fall into the smoothie error that we mentioned above, conceiving bioethics as the blending of specialized ideas from multiple disciplines in such a way as to create something new. Bioethics is not a homogeneous blend of specialization. It's a way of organizing knowledge derived from diverse disciplines in the service of answering ethical questions, normative questions. Normative questions are always relative to, among other things, the good of those creatures capable of asking them. So the normative task of bioethics always has reference to human good. Although our understanding of human good unfolds, the basic capacities of human beings are consistent over time. Thus the basic ends corresponding with the fulfillment of those capacities 
the goods of human beings are also consistent. Bioethics, like all branches of ethics, interests itself in protecting and promoting human life and health, facilitating communal harmony, minimizing injustice, protecting the weak, raising healthy children, promoting healthy behavior, advancing knowledge, and so on. Advances in technology and medicine generate new complexities for human beings, and they give rise to new questions about what is and isn't consistent with human good. And the questions often can't be answered without an adequate understanding of the complex facts deriving from allied fields. Because if we misunderstand the facts, we risk sabotaging the analysis. But the analysis as an organized effort is, as I've emphasized, normative inquiry. Its principles are supplied by practical reason and the field that concerns itself with practical reasonableness is philosophical ethics. The second objection from those who both reject the idea that bioethics is a new discipline as well as the view that philosophical ethics plays an architectonic role argues that bioethics should re be regarded as a second-order discipline, a second-order discipline. Loretta Kopelman, for example, puts this forward. And by this she means that it's a sort of emanation, that's my word, not hers, from multiple fields, but it's not reducible to any one of them. But her sole argument for rejecting philosophical ethics as a defining aim rests on the empirical fact that many people who call themselves bioethicists have no formal competence or training in philosophical ethics. Therefore, it must not be reducible to philosophical ethics. For two reasons, this proves nothing about the identity of bioethics. First, to contribute to the end of bioethics, one need not possess trained competency in the knowledge that orders the field. Many people contribute to the end of surgical medicine Technicians, nurses, surgical supply manufacturers, and anesthesiologists are all necessary for surgeries to be carried out well. But only the surgeon possesses the organizing knowledge that unifies these disparate fields of competency. Similarly, many branches of knowledge are necessary for bioethics to be done well, especially knowledge from the heart and clinical sciences. But ethical analysis is, as it were, the surgeon's skill it takes in hand the allied knowledge, organizes and prioritizes it, and directs it towards its normative end. Therefore, those who have no expertise in philosophical ethics, it seems to me, may assume the title bioethicist to the extent, and only to the extent, that they contribute necessary allied knowledge to the normative task. But if they lack competency in formal ethical reasoning, and by formal, I don't mean they have degrees from philosophy departments. I'll explain what I mean in a moment. Then their normative judgments on bioethical questions, that is to say their judgments, their opinions about what should be done, are and should only be taken as the judgments of scientists, phys physicians, political activists, lawyers, and not as the judgments of bioethicists. I think this is an important point. You often have lawyers who are involved in the field of bioethics who will wax eloquent about the ethical underlying questions of some issue. And I've found that lawyers and hard scientists within their field of competency can reason with dazzling preciseness, precision, 
But when they start to reason ethically, they can be prof profoundly superficial. I heard a scientist at Oxford one time who was speaking about um, mitochondrial DNA disease. We have DNA not in our, only in our, in our nuclei of our cell, but also in the mitochondria in our cells. And the mitochondria is found in the cytoplasm. And so only the female egg has mitochondrial DNA. So, only, so the mitochondrial DNA is only passed down from the mother, the maternal line, because there's no cytoplasm in the sperm cell. So the female line will pass on some diseases that are in the DNA that's found in the mitochondria of her cytoplasm. It's a fascinating area of study. The scientist got up and was talking about the precisions of this. And I was following. And then someone said to her, well, what do you think should be done about embryos and fetuses that contract mitochondrial DNA disease? And she said, this is after a dazzling performance in the realm of science. She said, well, you know, I feel differently about um, an embryo in the first few weeks than I do about a fetus later, say, 16 or 17 weeks. I feel differently, meaning I'm fine with, with termination early on, but later I feel uncomfortable. It's, this gal was an Oxford professor. I, you know, okay, tell us about the science, but shut up when it comes to ethics. You know, you're, you're, because I feel differently about a human being, I can treat them differently? Haven't we gotten into a lot of errors with feeling differently about different populations over the centuries? Are you really saying that? And yes, she was saying it. And scientists, not all scientists are ethically incompetent, but many are ethically incompetent. I hope I've not offended anybody here. If I have, please forgive me. So the judgments of scientists should be taken as a judgment of scientists. That's fine. You know, it's like the judgment of my mother, judgment of my mailman. You know, what do you think about, you know, about abortion? Take their opinion. That's important. The second reason Kopelman's argument proved nothing about the identity of bioethics is that in the absence of some substantive definition for the field, she doesn't, she doesn't give one. Mere self-identification as a bioethicist tells us nothing more than what one believes about himself. Kopelman might, might reply saying that self-identification is not enough. It needs to be coupled with affirmation by members of the academic or professional discipline. For example, through the process of peer review for publication in respective bioethics journals or appointments to academic positions. And of course, those positions wouldn't be given to people who aren't competent, and bio bioethical journals wouldn't publish articles that aren't specialized. And since those journals public a, publish a wide range of scholars other than philosophers, therefore, bioethics must be not only a philosophical discipline. But I would say this doesn't demonstrate that the defining aim of bioethics isn't philosophical ethics. It demonstrates either mm -hmm that not only professional philosophers are competent to undertake rigorous ethical reasoning in science and technology, or that bioethics journals sometimes publish essays that relate to but are not specifically engaged in the normative task that defines bioethics. In conclusion, I asked a number of questions in my opening paragraph that perhaps mm -hmm. we can address now. First, what unites the work of bioethicists? I would say all work in bioethics is organized by that is, contributes to or stems from ethical analysis in regard to questions raised by advances 
in science and technology. Second, what qualifies one to do bioethics? I would say persons competent to undertake the bioethical task ordinarily should be expert in moral analysis, having studied moral questions carefully, being familiar with dominant theories, addressed by those questions, and professionally engaged in articulating reasonable arguments in defense of normative conclusions. I don't mean to say that this is sufficient for making sound moral judgments or for making a good bioethicist, but without these skills, a person ordinarily should not guide bioethical deliberation on complex ethical issues. Bioethicists should understand and be amenable to the necessary role of other disciplines and avoid simplistic attempts to overcome the, the, the disciplinary tension between specialization and the necessary interdisciplinarity of the field. And bioethicists certainly may undertake tasks other than ethical analysis, for example, the analysis of regulatory guidelines or public policy and institutional practice or provide expert testimony in courts, or undertake policy analysis or popular writing and public speaking. But their core competency qualifying them for these tasks is their ability to do ethical analysis. Without this, their public speaking becomes nothing more than reporting. Their writing becomes journalism, and their policy and corporate analysis becomes an exercise in institutional rule compliance. Finally. Can bioethics be considered an autonomous branch of inquiry in its own right? I'd say yes and no. Yes, insofar as its scope of interdisciplinary reliance, that is the amount of fields that it draws upon and that necessarily it draws upon, is it seems to me uniquely wide among academic disciplines. And insofar as bioethicists must not only be experts in ethical analysis, but also be familiar enough with knowledge from the disciplines of the particular to guide intelligent deliberation. So if a bioethicist doesn't know anything about the reproductive cycle or the dynamics of the nervous system and is discussing brain death or doesn't know about the techniques of salpingectomy or salpingostomy or methotrexate in dealing with ectopic pregnancy, doesn't know any about the, any of those technical facts, then he certainly ain't going to be able to do good ethical reasoning. So you've got to know at least a minimum amount of science, technology. But know insofar as the central bioethical task is not substantially different from the task of what used to be called medical ethics, its disciplinary predecessor, namely the task of generating, assessing, and drawing out the implications of ethical questions in relation to advances in science and medicine. In other words, the task of applied ethics. Thank you very much. Faith and Reason Podcasts. New media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com.